Hello and welcome to episode number 163 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am online editor for the Northern Miner and I help out with social media as well. And yeah, charge your batteries. We have an in-depth discussion on the battery metals space from our Progressive Mine Forum in October. And it was a really fascinating discussion. China keeps coming back up. You know, whether it's our headline today on buying Continental's Beridica or it's in this battery metals panel where they're discussing how China dominates every stage of the supply chain in lithium. It's becoming a refrain here, and it has for a long time, let's face it. Uh, So anyways, so fascinating discussion on what's going on. There's a real sense from the lithium guys that there's going to be a bottleneck in supply. Andrew Miller from Benchmark Mineral Intelligence says this is going to happen in 2022. You might remember an earlier episode we had with uh, Martin Stephen from Rock Tech Lithium, and he was also saying similar things. This EV electric vehicle thing ramping up is really going to put pressure on lithium supplies. So that is coming up. Also, just a little bit of house cleaning here. I'd like to remind you it's only three weeks until Christmas, and I don't like to leave my gifts to the last minute. I often do, but... You know, it's sort of like planning a trip and you know you have to go on a certain date and it feels so much better when you buy that plane ticket way ahead of time and then every time you think about the trip, you think about how great that trip's going to be and how you've already bought your plane ticket. Well, it's a similar experience with Christmas. Get those gifts bought ahead of time and if you're looking for a thoughtful gift for the miner in your life, look no further than the art and humor of John Kilburn. Cartoons from the Northern Miner, it's $34.99 plus shipping. If you order it now, I, I would think there'd be zero issues getting it to you on time. It's about the thoughtful gift. So check that out. That is at northernminer.com JK. That's northernminer.com JK. Also, we still have tickets available for the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. You know, that might make an interesting gift. That's also an idea. If you're interested in buying one for yourself or for you can buy groups of 10 for your company or you can buy it for a student as a donation and I I imagine you could buy it as a Christmas present as well, just go to miningholloffame.ca slash annual dash ceremony and it takes place Thursday, January 9th at the Metro Toronto Convention Center. There's a reception, there's a dinner. So that's the 32nd annual dinner and induction ceremony of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. As well, we have our PMF videos at the bottom of our homepage. We have new diamonds in Canada on the sidebar. So if you want to find us online, just go to northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, on Instagram at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And we'd like to welcome our new sponsor for the podcast, Nevada Copper, and they will be featured in a mining minute in each of the next four episodes. Mark Wall, Chief Commercial Officer for Nevada Copper, will be discussing the company's copper project, and which is going into production imminently. It's exciting times at that company, and I think they want to get the message out. So give it a listen, and we will be right back. Joining me now is Mark Wall, who is Chief Commercial Officer for Nevada Copper. And Mark, could you just introduce uh, Nevada Copper to our listeners? For sure, Adrian, and thanks for your time today. Nevada Copper is a long-term significant copper producer based in Nevada. Uh, 
It's very exciting that our underground project, the first phase, which is a 13 and a half year mine life with significant inferred resource, which will mean that the mine life will actually be much longer, will be coming into production over the next few weeks. We're very excited about that. The process plant is uh, all but complete. The underground mine is progressing. So we are very excited with our uh, current state. We've also got a nearby open pit project that is fully permitted and we are working through the final feasibility study. So when we look at Nevada Copper, we've got a company based in Nevada that is imminently going to be into production for the first phase with other phases of the project ahead of us. Okay, great. And just to follow up on that, so is this a is this a pure copper project or is this a copper gold? What's the ratio of everything here? We're primarily a copper mine. We do have some gold and some silver in both the underground and the open pit ore body, but primarily we'll be producing a copper concentrate that will be at uh, 26% copper or thereabouts. Okay, excellent. And you said that uh, it's in the spring that you expected production, is that correct? Adrian, we will expect production over the next few weeks. We are in the, the final commissioning of the processing plant. We have around 100,000 tonnes of copper ore on surface waiting to go into the processing plant. So we will begin the process of commissioning and ramp up. And over the next few weeks, we would expect to be producing copper metal. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Mark. And we will see you next week on the next installment. And turning to the website, we have a new story by Trish Saywell, acting editor-in-chief and senior reporter. And it's a big one. China's Zijin mining to acquire continental gold for $1.4 billion in cash. And I'm going to go right into the article here. The cash-rich Chinese gold miner is on an acquisition spree. In early November, it said it would buy copper gold assets in Serbia from Freeport McMoran for up to $390 million. And it bought Nevsun Resources for $1.86 billion just over a year ago. The continental purchase will increase Zijin's gold reserves to more than 2,000 tons, it said. And we have a quote from Zijin chairman Chen Jinhe. Quote, Continental's 100% owned Beritica project in Antioquia, Colombia, is one of the largest and highest grade gold projects in the world and represents a highly complementary addition to Zijin's international asset portfolio. The article continues, Beritica is expected to pour gold in the first half of 2020, with average annual production of 250,000 ounces of gold over 14 years at all-in sustaining costs of roughly $600 per ounce. Chen also noted that Continental, quote, holds a sizable and highly prospective land package in Colombia that, combined with the Beritica project, provides Zijin with a leading position in an emerging world-class gold-producing region. Big move, and it just... Under the all-cash deal, Zijin will pay $5.50 for each share of Continental, a 29% premium over the 20-day volume-weighted average price. And also, Newmont Gold Corp has agreed to sell its 19.9% stake in Continental to Zijin for $260 million. It's just a constant drumbeat of acquisitions from China. So 
What I see happening just from over here is acquisition after acquisition spaced out to not create too much alarm. And moving on from Zijin, we have protests in Chile drive government to propose new constitution. And this is the latest from Tom as a party out of Latin America. In a bid to end weeks of anti-government protests and riots that have left at least 26 people dead and 13,500 people injured, Chile's political parties have agreed on a process to design a new constitution. The deal, reached in the early hours of November 15th, strives to resolve Chile's worst political crisis since the country's return to democracy a generation ago and marks a step into the unknown for a country long lauded as the most stable and business-friendly in the region. It's true. Chile has always been seen as the model in Latin America of what can be accomplished. And so this is quite the news. Uh, at a referendum in April next year, Chileans will be asked whether they want a new constitution, and if so, whether the document should be written by a constitutional convention consisting of citizens elected specially for this role, or one in which half will be elected citizens and the other half elected officials from the country's current Congress. I don't know enough about Chile's internal politics, but to me, this sounds like echoes of Brexit. We're going to just hold a referendum and they're just going to see what happens. And we're going to have a constitution based on this. It sounds more dramatic than Brexit. This isn't just leaving the EU. This is reshaping the very fiber of the country, the elemental laws of the land. Quite the... Wow. When was the last time you heard about a country changing their constitution? It's not something you hear every day. And just this sounds like they want to make a new one if they vote for this. So, yes, that's going on over in Chile. I'm going to just read a couple more paragraphs. The elections to the Constitutional Convention would be held in October 2020. And the convention would then have nine months, which can be extended by a further three months, to come up with a text that must be approved by two-thirds of its members. If successful, the document will be put to a second referendum in late 2021 or early 2022. Chile's current constitution, designed 40 years ago under dictator Augusto Pinochet's rule by U.S.-trained economists, refashioned the economy along free market principles. Since then, it has been championed by business leaders as underpinning much of the country's economic success. But critics have said for decades that it doesn't enshrine social rights or offer any kind of safety net for the poor. Some of its most unpopular tenets include a ban on strikes by workers in the public sector and protections for private property that even extend to private ownership of water from rivers and other waterways. While the process for writing a new constitution now looks clear, the impact a new constitution will have on the mining sector is, quote, a big if says Marco Zavala, a mining lawyer at Santiago law firm Guerrero Olivos. Yeah, so indeed, there's a big if, if they're reopening the Constitution or rewriting it. So another head-turning story, you just get the sense that change is afoot these days. And these protests are happening all over the world. And you don't want to exaggerate, but there are a significant amount of protests, and they're resulting in stuff. There's a lot of... The, Prime Minister of Malta resigned. The, I think the Prime Minister of Lebanon resigned. In Chile, you have a referendum on a new constitution. These aren't just protests. These are protests with results. So we continue here. And 
I love this company, Orania Resources, because it sort of got a little bit of an archaeological side to it. When I walk by their booth at PDAC, I always take a second look. Oh, that's Orania Resources. Keith Barron, who found Fruta del Norte in Ecuador, is the chairman and CEO, and he is looking for lost cities that had gold mines in it. And so it's called the Lost Cities Project, dating back to the early 17th century. I'll read you some of that here. For almost 20 years, Keith Barron has been researching and hunting for two famous gold mining centers in Ecuador that historic Spanish manuscripts and maps from the 16th and 17th centuries refer to as Sevilla del Oro and Logrono de los Caballeros. This week, the chairman and CEO of Arania Resources announced that Field teams have found an old road in the central part of the company's Lost Cities Kutuku project that he believes linked the two mining centers from 1565 until 1606. So if you go on our website, you'll see actually a picture of two of the stones from what they believe is that road. And you'll see the team looking at that old road. So I love this project. It's a really interesting way of... And it's got a bit of a... And Indiana Jones feel to it, you know, like there's, if they find something, it's going to be by looking through all these old maps. It feels like a treasure hunt. Later in this article, they discuss that and they say, we're not just a treasure hunt. So I'm going to, let's just go a bit deeper here. Keith Barron says on a conference call, quote, in the historical records, they call them cities, but they were never cities. They were gold settlements of maximum of probably to 20 to 30 Spaniards and a number of indigenous people made to work in the mines. And we have a summary here. At, the, at their peak, around 2,000 workers would have worked at these mines, he says, but the numbers dwindled over time down to the hundreds as the areas were depopulated by diseases like influenza and smallpox. And Barron continues, This is a very significant discovery, and fingers crossed that it's going to be something that will result in real significance. We know from the documentation that we have, and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of historic documents and maps, that this isn't a tale out of Treasure Island. This is something very real. People lived and died here, and we are very much hot on the trail. So two of those rectangular blocks, I believe the ones in the picture, lie at a junction in the road and are estimated to weigh between 900 and 1,000 pounds. And if you look at that picture, again, it's on northernminer.com on the homepage, you'll see it. They clearly are made by humans. This isn't, they have a rectangular shape, so they have found something. So that's Arania Resources. Continuing on, we have Turquoise Hill in their Oyutolgoi project. Turquoise Hill faces legal challenge at Oyutolgoi. An NGO has brought a lawsuit against Turquoise Hill and a judge has held it up. Let's just read a little bit of this. Last week, Turquoise Hill Resources reported that a lawsuit previously lodged by a Mongolian non-governmental organization group was apparently upheld by the country's administrative court. The challenge brought by NGO group Darken Mongol Nogu Negdel alleges due process was not properly followed in 2015 when the government of Mongolia finalized the Oyu Tolgoi underground mine development and financing plan with partners Turquoise Hill and Rio Tinto, both of whom refute any suggestion that the UDP or any of its underlying agreements are illegal. The Oyu Tolgoi copper mine in southern Mongolia is jointly owned by Rio Tinto and Turquoise Hill, and the Mongolian government 
also owns 34%. And the reported ruling in favor of the NGO is the latest in a series of challenges faced by Turquoise Hill and its parent company, Rio Tinto, in the plan to expand underground mine development at the major copper and gold operation. Uh, According to the Financial Times, some optimism has emerged. Mongolia's Minister of Mining and Heavy Industry, Dolgor Surgin Sumyabazar, confirmed in a November 26th speech at the recent Mines and Money Conference in London that Oyu Tolgoy's ongoing underground expansion project will not be stopped and, quote, would proceed directly forward. So news out of Mongolia. And finally, let's just take a look at this Newmont Gold Corp story. They have raised their stake in GT Gold, and that has been raised from 9.9% to about 14.9% through an $8.3 million private placement. GT Gold has two main discoveries at its Totoga property, which is in BC's Golden Triangle. So the Golden Triangle comes up again. Newmont is getting a foothold in the area. And is there anything else? There is a preliminary economic assessment, which is scheduled for completion by late 2020. And so that's GT Gold. So interesting little move there. Newmont's a really interesting company. I mean, I get the sense when I listen to financial radio that the mainstream sort of hedge fund people seem to like Newmont as far as gold companies, maybe because it's American, maybe because it's one of the largest cap. I think they even have a dividend. Let's actually do a quick, before we go to metal prices here, yeah, look at this. Newmont Gold Corp has a 1.45% dividend for a gold company, PE ratio of 13.92. In a pretty expensive market, I tell you, these materials stocks, you know, they're looking pretty attractive, a lot of them. And even, uh, I was looking at energy. I mean, Exxon is giving a 5% dividend. That's pretty high. I mean, because Exxon is famous for raising its dividend pretty regularly. I mean, it's, I've heard it described more as a financial company than an oil company. And so for a company like Exxon, 5% dividend. Energy stocks have been battered, and I think a lot of people have been burned by them. So I I think that's what's going on there, because you'd think there'd be a lot of takers. I read up a little bit on Exxon, and it seems that they are actually even having to finance their dividend right now, which is quite remarkable, but that it's basically on pretty solid footing, and the dividend is safe, as people say. That's not a recommendation. That's an observation. So anyway, so that's what's going on with Newmont and they're making moves. So it's not all getting at the top of our news section here. We were talking about how they got rid of 20% of its stake in Beritica and sold it to Zijin. And here they're investing in the Golden Triangle. So interesting little moves going on here at Newmont and just in the industry in general. To metal prices, we would like to once again thank our great friends at infomine.com for providing these prices. If you would ever like to check them out on your own, just put in metal prices and infomine into your Google search, and you will see a link to the page that I look at. And on December 3rd, 
Gold is $1,469.49 per ounce. That is about $14 higher than last week. Silver is $0.05 higher at $17 even. Platinum is at $900.43. That's a dollar less than last week. Palladium has rocket launched up to $1,859.41. That is approximately $67 higher than last week. So it had run up. It took a break the last five weeks. And then this week it has just rocket launched. So $1,859. Palladium continues to scream higher. Let's see where it goes. And looking at our other industrial metals on November 29th, copper is at $2.66. That's one penny higher than last week. Aluminum is at 81 cents. That's two cents higher than last week. Lead is down a penny at 88 cents. Nickel is down 28 cents to $6.26. Tin is even at $7.42. Cobalt, it's time to send out the email. Uh, My former boss, John, was saying, don't read out the number if it's not right. And if you don't know it's right, don't read it. So I appreciate your note, John. So I will... Send out the email today about the cobalt price just to confirm. So cobalt, it cannot be confirmed. And zinc is at $1.05, which is the same as last week. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the battery metals panel from the Progressive Mind Forum, which took place in October at the Mars Discovery District in downtown Toronto. What's going on in the lithium market? Again, you might remember the interview with Rock Tech Lithium's Martin Stevens six weeks ago, and you're hearing multiple voices here saying that there's going to be a bottleneck in lithium around 2022, and that the world is not ready for all these car companies jumping on the electric vehicle bandwagon. They set it up really nicely. Andrew Miller first gives a presentation. It's about nine minutes on the state of the lithium market. Extremely interesting. And then we have a discussion on it. And the discussion features Ryan Castillo, who is Managing Director of Atomus Intelligence, Guy Bourassa, the President and CEO of Namaska Lithium, Andrew Miller, who is Head of Price Assessments with Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, and Trent Mell, President and CEO of First Cobalt. Trent says in this talk that he's even visited the White House a couple of times. So this is moderated by Mining.com executive editor Frick Ells. He does a great job. Hope you enjoy the discussion and we'll see you on the other side. It is time for our second panel of the day. We're moving into the realm of battery metals. I'd like to introduce Frick Els. He is the executive editor for Mining.com. Mining.com has become one of the most go-to, most visited mining websites in the world and has upwards of over 400,000 unique visitors a month. So Frick's been there for nine years. He's done an incredible job building up the content and the following of that. I'll introduce Frick. You come on up and introduce your panel. Good afternoon. Battery metals is a fast-changing, young and complex supply chain and industry. So I asked Andrew Miller of Benchmark Mineral Intelligence to give us a short introduction and just give us a lay of the land of where we are. 
And then afterwards, I'll call the panel and we'll continue the, with the discussion. Hi there, everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you, Frick, for the introduction and thank you for all the team uh, for putting on the event today. As Frick said, I've been asked to give a few introductory remarks, but I just wanted to give a, a snapshot and an overview of what we see as the developments in the lithium-ion battery supply chain um, and what's really key to look out for as you look at this market going forward. A brief bit about Benchmark and what we do for those of you who aren't familiar with us. Um, we're a market-based publishing company. We specialize in the lithium-ion battery supply chain. And really what we aim to do is, is tie together what's happening at a raw material level and follow that through, through to the anodes and cathodes and battery cell production to encapsulate the whole EV supply chain. We have a, a number of different divisions of our business that can help from everything from pricing, forecasting, events, consultancy. I wanted to set the scene a little bit by, by taking a step back and looking at the macro picture for, the, for electric vehicles and for the lithium-ion battery market. When we started Benchmark back in 2015, there were three of what have become known as the, the battery mega factories. So these are lithium-ion battery production facilities with a capacity pretty much an order of magnitude bigger than anything that was previously in the market prior to 2015. The big one, pretty much, I'm sure everyone in the room would have heard about, is obviously the, the Tesla Gigafactory. There are also two other gigawatt-hour scale facilities in the pipeline at that point, one of which never actually came to fruition, which was Foxconn. If you contrast that to where we are today, we're now up to 99 of these mega factories, Tesla no longer being the largest by quite some way. A few of these logos on the screen here you'll recognize, maybe potentially BYD, obviously some of the more established players in the market, Panasonic, Samsung, those type of companies. But you've also seen a huge wave of new companies enter this market, a lot based in China and Asia, which is really the, the lithium-ion battery production hub, but some companies as well that have started to develop the industry outside of Asia. Uh, Northvolt, for instance, obviously we have the Gigafactory in North America and other Asian companies that have invested in parts of North America to develop production capacity outside of Asia. So a much more global trend than it ever was back in 2015 and a huge amount of change over the past four years. So where does that take us and what does the, you know, the industry look like today? If you look at the lithium-ion battery market last year, to give you some context, there was less than 300 gigawatt hours of installed capacity globally last year for lithium-ion batteries. So we're working from a base of around 300 gigawatt hours last year. That number with the 99 plants really driving things forward that I mentioned before is taking things to over two terawatt hours. So over 2,000 gigawatt hours is now in the pipeline for lithium-ion battery production capacity by 2028. So a huge amount of change over the coming decade. What you'll also notice is really this trend isn't slowing down. As we've seen, you know, a lot of these raw material markets for batteries really slow over the past 12 months. This year, you've continued to see major announcements, major investments being made downstream, both at an electric vehicle level and a battery cell level. Just at the start of this year, we're only at around 1,500 gigawatt hours, which is still huge. We've added around a third to that from where we are today. So while the rest of the supply chain maybe isn't moving at the same pace as what's happening downstream, it's worth keeping track of, of where this market is really going longer term. And what does that mean for the raw materials then? What does that mean for, for the mining and, and what's happening upstream in this supply chain? What I've done is taken the, those numbers, those total numbers of all of this capacity that's in the pipeline over the coming decade, and try to give you some context about what we see as the four critical raw materials in this supply chain and what it means for the growth of those industries over the coming decade. So if all of those mega factories were due to come into production and operate at full capacity, we know that's, that's most likely not the case, but we're still a decade out from this 2028. 
um, sort of time horizon, you'd see that the graphite use, the graphite anode use in lithium-ion batteries will grow from around 180,000 tonnes last year to over 2 million tonnes by 2028. That is where the demand will go to supply that amount of lithium-ion battery capacity. Lithium, very similar growth, 10, 10x growth. You're looking at a market that was supplying 120,000 tonnes of a total around 300,000 tonne market. Around 120 was going into batteries last year. That's growing to 1.6 million. Similarly for nickel, nickel, 82,000 tonnes, a much smaller, a very small fragment of the, the total nickel market was going into lithium-ion batteries. That will grow to 1.3 million tonnes to support that. And cobalt going from 61,000 to just under 400,000. So the point is about all of these minerals and these markets is with the slight exception of nickel, but not the nickel chemical that goes into batteries, you're talking about refined speciality minerals and metals. These aren't big bulk commodities where it's just a matter of taking them out of the ground and shipping them to the end market. These have to be refined typically into chemicals that are used by the battery producers. So we're not just talking about the mining side of this, we're talking about advanced materials that are going to need to grow at a rate of 10x plus over the next 10 years. So huge growth coming from these battery production facilities. Then I suppose, you know, as we're all aware, not all of these will come to fruition. A lot are in China. A lot maybe don't have completely secured investment to act on those expansion plans. But really to, to get a wider picture of where demand will be in the future, what we then do is look at, you know, what is the actual material that these raw materials are used in? And that's the anode and cathode. That's predominantly where the technology developments in the lithium-ion battery market are happening, either on the anode or the cathode side. If you look at the outlook, and this shows you the sort of range of different cathode technologies in the market, you'll see there's a number of different types of chemistry that are available for lithium-ion batteries on the cathode side. But the key point I really want to point out here is that we're moving from that dark blue area, which is where the market was in 2015, that represents LCO. So that's the type of cathode chemistry that you'll get in your smartphones, in your laptops, consumer electronics. Very cobalt intensive, that material, but obviously not as much growth in that part of the market. If you look forward and where we're going in the future, really the, the bulk of growth in the lithium-ion battery market is of course going to be driven by the emergence of electric vehicles and in particular the adoption of passenger electric vehicles. The grey areas at the top represent what, what the industry knows as NCA or NMC cathodes. The important thing to note about those is those are cathode chemistries which require a huge amount of nickel, a much higher nickel intensity. So there's um, big security of supply issues around nickel chemicals for batteries. But also you're going to see a huge amount of growth. And even though the intensity of cobalt is going to uh, decrease compared to the LCO technology, you're actually going to see a huge amount of volume increase in cobalt um, in the market moving forward. So those gray areas, nickel and cobalt-based cathode chemistries, are really where we're headed towards. On the anode side, it's a little bit more cut and dry. You're typically looking either natural or synthetic graphite on that side of the market. But again, the key point about this graphite, and while graphite as a wider market might be a little bit more akin to, to some of big bulk commodities, the key point about this is the type of graphite that's used in batteries isn't the most available, either from a feedstock point of view or from the engineering that has to take place to take that raw material to something that can be used by battery producers. So this is the, the, the development on the anode side, and really it's, it's that type of carbon, the natural, the synthetic carbon, which is really gonna dominate the market for the foreseeable future. 
I just wanted to finish off on this, and this is our forecast. So I've given you the case study of what if all of these production facilities come to fruition. Of course, that might not be the case, but we're still expected in this gray line here shows our growth projection for each of these key raw materials. And the key point that I really want to point out here is that if you look at the expected supply growth from existing operations in the market, in the case of lithium, you're looking around 2022, even with those expansions that are lined up from existing operations, if you were to just rely on those, the market would be moving into deficit by 2022. You need some new supply to come into the market or else the lithium industry is going to be faced with a huge, is going to be a huge bottleneck in the adoption of these electric vehicles. The other key point about this is by that 2022 time horizon, to bring a new lithium operation, to get it into production, to ramp it up, to get the spec of lithium required by battery users. There's a huge qualification process in this too. So to start addressing some of that potential deficit from 2022, the money needs to start going into lithium now, or yesterday really, but it needs to definitely be going in now. And then looking even further forward than that, if you look at lithium and you take into account all of the new projects, all of the projects that are being developed at the moment, and you count that all of those are going to get the financing they need, they're going to come into production in this time frame. you're still looking at 2027 that the market moves into deficit again. So this is a huge structural change for the lithium industry and for all of these raw materials that needs to be addressed by significant investment and partnerships between the mining industry and the, the EV companies and battery companies further downstream. And just to wrap things up, Cobalt, very similar picture. Actually, Cobalt, due to Glencore's announcement um, just a few weeks ago, the Cobalt market looks set to move into deficit as early as next year and a structural deficit by 2026. Similar picture for Flake Graphite, 2022. Um, and then if you, even if you were to take into account all of the development stage projects, we're, we're facing a big challenge by 2028. So I'll wrap up with this and just a final slide that might be of interest to some of you in the room, given where we are. This is how we sort of explain to the lithium-ion battery supply chain uh, to people when, when they ask us where are the key areas of this supply chain. We have the mining, we then have the chemical processing, which takes those materials into something battery users could actually use. You then have the, the anode or cathode production, the cell manufacturing, and that's all before it can go into these electric vehicles, these Teslas, all of these new models that are being introduced. The key point to point out from this slide is that China is the only country that dominates every level of this supply chain. And there is very limited, if not none, no production here in Canada at this stage. And I know we're going to hear from a couple of companies on the panel who are looking to put that right. Thanks for your time. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Um, I'd like to invite on stage uh, Trent Mel. He's President, CEO and Director of First Cobalt. Guy Burassa, he is President and CEO of Namaska Lithium. And Ryan Castillo, he's MD of Animus Intelligence. So I was an automotive journalist in a previous life, so the fact that the two industries are colliding is great news for me. Ryan, speak first. Your company literally operates where the rubber meets the road, right? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. We are a, a market research and consulting company. We cover the rare earth industry quite closely, which is, I think, what we're, we're most known for. But we also closely track global EV registrations month after month and follow what's happening with the chemistries being used in those EVs and what the implications are for, for metals consumption. Guy, tell us a bit about Namaska uh, Lithium. Well, Namaska Lithium is a Quebec-based company that has been working since the fall of 2009 in developing a vertically integrated lithium hydroxide production facility in Quebec. So the mine up north, as you see this picture, taken about a month ago, we're in the construction phase of the mine operation. 
and we'll also have a conversion facility in Shawinigan, Quebec. We wanted to become vertically integrated to be able to compete with the Chinese, get a better quality product, cheaper, but also greener, with very little byproduct, so that we can take advantage of this at some point. If you are to go in the EV industry, you might as well be green yourself to put that thing on the market. So we developed a new electrochemical process for making lithium splitting, lithium salt splitting. And we have built in 2017 and have operated for three years now a phase one plant, so a demonstration plant, to qualify our product with the clients and also demonstrate clearly the quality of the product. We're in the construction phase currently and hopefully we'll be able to uh, wrap it up by the end of next year. Great. Yeah, so first Cobalt, we started this company a couple of years ago. Initially went to the DRC because that's where Cobalt is. That's where, you know, we're coming up to 70% of global production coming out of the Congo. Meanwhile, the battery market continues to evolve. The epicenter today is Asia, China, uh, Korea, and Japan. The U.S. is coming up to being the, the, the second largest battery maker, battery jurisdiction in the world, and yet we don't have any cobalt here. We got no production, we got no downstream processing, and so our assets are Canada, U.S., and the mineral side, and on the, uh, on the processing side, we've got a refinery five hours north of here in Cobalt, Ontario, and that's really been the focus of our attention over the last, uh, the last year or so, particularly as cobalt kind of went through a bit of a down trough uh, in 2018. And so where we are right now, we've, we've, we've announced a deal with Glencore to uh, put $40 million into the refinery to recommission it, to expand it, initially taking feed out of the DRC. That feed right now is finding its way from the DRC into China. And so in addition to the artisanal issues that we're all too aware of in Africa, and particularly in the Congo, you've got the geopolitical backdrop of Chinese control of rare earths and now critical minerals. I've been to the White House a couple of times to discuss this issue. Interior Department, D.C. is very tuned in to the cobalt market. And so our opportunity really is to become the first and only processor or refiner of cobalt here on the continent. And so our refinery, you'll see a picture here if we could scroll through a couple of couple of slides. So we're a junior, we got a 60 million market cap, and yet we've got this building here that the replacement value is worth well more than our more than our, than our market cap. But you know, this image, what it captures is, you know, the infrastructure is there, the building is there, the roads, the tailing facility, the power and when you think of project execution, this is where things go off the rails, timing and budget, and it's all there. And so the work we're gonna be doing is inside the four walls. And more important than all that is it's permitted. And so our, our opportunity here is to get ourselves into production for next year with the world's biggest cobalt miner supplying the feed and the capital, and, uh, and thereafter looking to expand it. And the last slide of this deck, and here we go. If we realize on our objectives here, and this is a forward-looking statement, uh, we would account for about 5% of the global refining market right here in North America. So a, a good start for a problem that governments around the world are trying to solve. Speaking of uh, the DRC and I guess cobalt is at the forefront of this trend. I remember rare earths oh, 10 years ago when prices were going stratospheric. There was lots of talk and China controlled more than 90% of all output, if not virtually all of it. There was lots of talk of having legislation limiting uh, or encouraging places like the U.S. to be less dependent on China. Of course, we know what happened. Two years later, the only uh, rare earth mine in the U.S. Uh, went into receivership. Is there finally, I know there's new legislation being tabled as well, and there's more initiatives afoot. Is that finally happening? Are we seeing that politicians and the st structure of the system is taking this seriously? Hey, I'll start if I could. It's a problem in search of a solution, and, and the politicians are, you know, they're, they're actively turning their mind to it. we got a trade war that's front and center of everybody's mind in, every, in the global economy. They just don't know what to do about it. There's legislation that's coming that's saying we're, we're going to make it easier, but, you know, so what? Uh, until we see it, we've got patented property in Idaho, but we're surrounded by Forest Service lands, and you're dealing with civil servants. 
And, you know, you can do everything right, but you can't get certainty of a permitting process when you're dealing with the federal jurisdiction. It can't be a one year or two year. It could be a three or a five or a never. So we've got the benefit of, of having private land. But when you look at how you're going to, you know, kind of remove the log jam here, it's, it's two things. It's permitting. And, of course, it's, it's access to capital. Now, there is talk with some of these cooperation agreements, U.S. and Australia, Canada, Brazil, Chile, about maybe using part of the U.S. defense budget to develop the downstream processing side of things. It would be nice, but you know, those are the two things you need. And I, I'm, I'm not sure the politicians, beyond a lot of goodwill and a lot of good statements, really have the, the answers that we need to move this forward. Yeah, but the problem with the, uh, the politicians and the, is that they're elected for four years. Yeah. Developing a mine takes 10 years. So you have to, to have that vision and have, after that, the money available, the will to do it. Just give you an example. You talked about the, the rare earth. Rare earth is controlled by the Chinese because they have the benefit of having the rare earth on their soil. It is not the case in lithium. In lithium, they're dependent on importing the raw material from elsewhere, in this case, Australia. So they don't have that structure that can give them the control. We're letting them take the control. Right. They have bought big mines in Australia. They have bought a big chunk of SQM shares. They are trying to corner small producers everywhere. If we let them do that, and we do let them do that because we do not provide capital to other companies to be able to develop. I was just going to give an example. Our project, uh, we raised $1.1 billion last year that we closed in May. Of the $1.1 billion, 12% came from the Quebec government. The rest of it, less than 10%, came from Canada, including retail investors, etc. So how can you try to keep the control or get the control or not allow China to get the control if you're not willing to put money where your mouth is. That's one of the issues. If I can just add, I agree with both Trent and with, with Guy for the most part, what they said. Coming from the rare earth side of things, which as I mentioned is what we primarily focus on, I'm always encouraged to see these type of government mandates come about, but I'm always skeptical about you know, what results can really be born out of it. On the rare earth side, what we often see is a focus on cutting red tape. How can we expedite the development of new mines, get new holes in the ground in the U.S. or in allied countries so that we can get that domestic supply? And the challenge is often that there's a failure to recognize these gaps downstream of that mine output that will take, be it the rare earth mine outputs and turn them into magnets, or take the lithium or nickel mine outputs, turn them into chemicals, cathodes, anodes, etc. Um, so until these downstream pieces of the puzzle are addressed and filled in. I think any efforts that are directed at bringing about new mines or new sources of supply will simply be misguided and ultimately may just end up resulting in more output that gets sent to China or sent elsewhere to be value added, to be processed. So the key, in our view, really needs to be on focusing these midstream gaps that will take those mine outputs and make them usable for, for the domestic end users, the automakers, the wind turbine manufacturers, etc. If it's not coming from governments or similar initiatives, may it come from the consumer? We heard about the little green line that Apple wants to have between them and where the metals in their phones come from. Aren't we going to see a point where somebody is going to make a blood cobalt movie and that whole pendulum is going to swing? And that you can envisage a period where maybe there's a premium to be paid for cobalt from North America or or Europe. I think Trent may have some comments on the cobalt. I think, I think you're definitely going to start to see 
I don't know whether you can shift completely away from, you know, particularly in the case of cobalt, DLC is so central as a source of raw material to move away. But to, to place a premium on a strategically located supply chain, I think is definitely the way the industry is moving. And you've seen that from a number of years ago when the Amnesty report a few years ago shone a lot of light on what was happening on cobalt and made people like Apple very uncomfortable. Um, but we're not talking about Apple now. We're not talking about batteries the size of your phone anymore. We're talking about batteries the size of your car. So it's, it's the GMs of the world, it's the, the Fords, the, everyone who's put out these huge statements, the VWs about where they want to be in the future. They don't want to, you know, just from a, a, a sensible business practice point of view, they don't want to see the vast majority of their batteries, their anodes, their cathodes, their raw materials coming out of China. So, so I sort of agree with Ryan, definitely in the sense, and I think we're starting to already see it. A lot of this drive needs to come from developing the whole supply chain. And the raw materials are a very central part to that. You know, if the market's still in Asia, you're not solving a huge problem potentially. What will be really important, I think, moving forward and why Trent's projects and Guy's project are really strategically important to North America as a whole is that to support the automotive industry here, to support the continued development of the automotive industry, the supply chain needs to be in place to allow for electric vehicles. And, and for that reason, I do think though there's the potential that you'll see a premium and that you'll see companies target want to work with specific other companies for their supply chain. Uh, yeah, I just got back from Asia, a trade mission with NRCAN, myself with 15 other resource companies trying to pair up battery mineral companies in Canada with some of the big conglomerates in Asia. And, and it is coming. The battery plant investment, the cathode makers, the battery makers to support the evolution of, of the EV market here in North America. These are big investments, billion dollar investments. We've got a lithium producer, cobalt producer here in North America that could support that. Quebec, Ontario, Alabama, Georgia, they're all vying to attract those dollars. And these are big, big dollars. So maybe we will have our moment. The EV market for some still feels like a cute, cool, niche little industry. But if you look at the adoption rate of any technology through time, the automotive industry is a, a great example. In the year 1900, the U.S. had 8,000 automotive licenses. 12 years later, 8,000 becomes 902,000 licenses. So it goes from being niche to, to mainstream. And we're on that curve. A lot of people don't see it yet. We're barely at the early adopters uh, stage, but it's coming and it's coming in a huge, huge fashion. It's going to be very exciting for our industry and what it means, not just for the, the niche little commodities you see here, but copper and nickel alike. So just on the theme of tech, WeWork was mentioned this morning. Last year, I did a battery metals presentation where I, I mentioned a dog walking app. The reason I, I'm saying that is, Guy, yeah, your company shares investors in those companies. Is this maybe where the tide turns, where VC companies in the tech space see where they need to go? I don't know if it's the reality or it's somebody that has a thing in the future. I thought that the money would come from OEM car manufacturers or uh, large battery manufacturers. Unfortunately, OEM car manufacturers have not yet realized that it takes at least 10 years to develop from the ground up a, a new supply chain of raw material. Battery manufacturers are not there yet, and it's big money, very big money. So with small market cap, 200 million, 400 million of market cap, you need $1 billion. It's a, it's a big, big chunk. So it's, it's very challenging. And, and again, it's a circle. You talk with some, uh, some bankers and you try to finance your project and they say, well, gee, it's a billion dollars, it's too much. Why don't you start as a spot domain producer and sell to the Chinese? And with the profit, at some point, uh, maybe you will be able to finance, so less dilution. 
You try to explain to them makes no sense. And the reality, just catching up. There was a big spike in the concentrate uh, sales price uh, two years ago. Now it's down to about cost of production in Australia. So obviously, anybody in Canada that would have a business plan of making spodumene concentrate would be closed. Yeah. So you have to have a vision, you have to have a plan, and you need to execute the plan no matter what sideliners say. But uh, getting the money, I don't think the VCs are, because they have a short-term vision of return where you have a long, long-term investment. So end users should be the ones that are investing in that. Yeah, and I mean, like you say, the, the, the numbers are staggering. I mean, Volkswagen alone announced a $50 billion battery purchasing plan. And if you look at electric vehicles versus uh, internal combustion engines, the raw materials almost makes up half of the cost of the vehicle versus internal combustion, that's maybe 12, and that's uh, steel and aluminum maybe. Um, so the, yeah, both industries, I think, will be fundamentally changed by this. Um, which brings me to my next question. It is evolving so rapidly. It's, it's quite complex. What are possible investors in this sector maybe missing? Yeah, just, just a quick thought. Uh, this is something I thought about in advance because I think it is a question that, that begs a, a thoughtful answer. Um, I think when you look at the EV space and you, you see how fast it's growing and you look at the battery space and you recognize how quickly it's evolving, how different materials are being used in different quantities and other materials are being thrifted, etc., that can be off-putting, I think, as from an investor's standpoint uh, on the outside looking in. Uh, but when you consider the underlying growth, that's when you when you discount the the changes in chemistries that we're seeing now and into the future, you consider the underlying growth that's going to to push this demand up, be it EV sales in combination with rising average pack capacity, so an average EV having a larger battery. We're going to see a situation where a rising tide floats all boats. So recognizing that we're moving towards cathode chemistries that have higher concentrations of nickel at the expense of cobalt doesn't make it an either-or situation. We, we think that all of the materials that are, are used in the chemistries currently um, are going to enjoy this growth going forward. And I think in looking at the, the slide that Andrew put up with projections of cathode chemistries into the foreseeable future, we see that there's no major surprises coming. We don't have new fan-dangled technologies coming in in the next decade or two, meaning that it's going to be nickel, it's going to be lithium, it's going to be cobalt, graphite, and manganese. Um, some may do better than others, but ultimately, a rising tide is going to float all of those boats. Yeah, to answer your, your question, the investors are missing intelligence. I mean, information. Because if anybody was looking a close look at uh, uh, Andrew's slide, where you have a shortage in 2022, a shortage in 2027, even taking into consideration all projects, and I can guarantee you if we go projects by projects, half of it don't even make the bar. Yeah. So. If you look at this, you would always all be gone out calling your, your, your brokers to buy stocks of lithium and cobalt. So you need intelligence, you need information. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of good available, free information available to understand what's coming. So people are looking at the big titles. Everything coming back to the Chinese spot market or the Chinese EV. Our subsidy in June has been changed reducing the, the, the penetration of EV. So, ah, gee, there's mo no more lithium needed. Mm -hmm. So, you need to have good intelligence, take the time, and if you do believe what Andrew is saying, run and buy your lithium stocks. 
I, I would add there's three things investors are missing. Andy can speak to the, the cost component better than any of us in terms of the cost parity between EVs and gas engines, and it's coming down at a rapid pace and we're getting close. So cost parity is going to be a big, important differentiator. But the investments that are going in, $50 billion by VW alone, it's massive. We're not going back. This is not a fad that's going to come and go. Um, so so you, you got to take the view that it's here to stay. And thirdly, if you've driven an EV, I, I bought a Tesla 3 a couple of months ago. It's, it's a superior ride. You're driving your phone. Um, everything is automated. It, yes, there's the cool factor. But there's so much more about electric vehicles than just the battery. Um, it's a smart car. And, and if you can get over the range anxiety and the cost factors and all that, um, then I think people, the adoption rates go through the roof. I was just going to say from our point of view and, and coming back to Guy's point about intelligence, I think a big problem we find from, from investors that subscribe to our services is the lack of transparency, particularly on price. It makes it very difficult to, to, to value uh, projects when these aren't, you know, everyone, Guy and I were having a conversation about this earlier, trying to apply a commodity framework to these type of minerals and metals, it doesn't work. People are asking, what is the, the price of lithium? There's not one price of lithium. There are dozens of prices of lithium, dozens of different types of lithium that go into a battery. A similar issue with cobalt and all of these, what we see as the critical uh, battery input. So I'd say that's a big hurdle that the industry needs to overcome and investors need to get their head around at the same time. Yeah, and I was going to say the, the, the Chinese or people are thinking that the Chinese can like this, increase their production and conversion of lithium salt, and they're going to flood the market. Again, understand the cost structure. They are dependent on importing the raw material from third parties thousands of kilometers away. They cannot flood the market at a cheap cost. They have a base cost that is higher than what we can do in Canada. But more important, they are not reliable. They do lie about their capacity. They never get to their nameplate capacity, and they very, very rarely get to the quality that is required by the rest of the world battery manufacturers. Mm. So when you look and you, you say only LCE numbers in general, and you mix all of this together, you don't take about, don't consider quality and product, and you just have a big number, which is inflated artificially by the, the Chinese that are building uh, the conversion facility, maybe you can say, ah, oh, they're gonna be an oversupply. But when you do your real job, and you do analysis, and you follow the last 35 years of uh, statistics about production in China, you know that they will never make their number. Thank you very much. It must have been clear. this episode of the Northern Miner podcast. It's really interesting always to have this vantage point from the mining industry and just to, it really does provide a certain context for the news that I find illuminating. So I'm really glad that you joined me. I'd like to also rethink Nevada Copper for their sponsorship and we're going to hear again from them next week. Look them up and until next week, take care. <laughs>